If you work with your hands and tools, you probably have a pair of channel lock pliers. Well, John DeArmond is president and CEO of Channel Lock in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Well, John joins me to talk about his experience of getting shut down by Governor Wolf as a non-essential business. And he also tells us why he is voting yes on the May 18 constitutional questions. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. And my guest today is John DeArmond. He is the President and CEO of Channel Lock and also a board member of Commonwealth Partners. John, welcome to Brews and Views. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, uh, and this is really on the heels of an op-ed that you wrote uh, that appeared in the, the Erie newspaper. Um, which is just north of, of your business, uh, which is in Meadville, uh, Crawford County there. Um, and uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar uh, with uh, what your business does, uh, talk about uh, Channel Lock, and then we'll get into what your op-ed says and, and what you're encouraging people to do. But t- tell, tell us about Channel Lock. Okay, sure. Uh, Channel Lock, uh, we're a 135-year-old hand tool company. Uh, we're fifth-generation family-owned. Uh, the business was started by my great-great-grandfather, George Beatty Armit. Uh, he was a local uh, blacksmith farrier at the time, and, and actually Connie Lake, which was Evansburg at the time, which is about 12 miles west of Meadville. Um, he was, you know, like many tradesmen back in those days, wasn't quite happy with the quality of the tools available, so he started to make his own. Um, and from there, um, the popularity of his tools began to grow because there were a lot of farriers and blacksmiths up back then. And uh, people started to come to him and, out and ask if they could buy them. Uh, so that was the, the, the beginning of the enterprise. And the story goes is he would spend his winters forging a, tra- or a wagon load of, of tools and then spend the, the, uh, the summers selling the tools town to town. And once the tools were gone, he'd sell the horse, sell the wagon, get on a train and come back to Connie Lake and start it all over again. Well, I always say to people, I say, I bet you have a pair of channel locks uh, sitting on your workbench and they have that. Uh, what's the color blue? Um, we just call it channel lock blue. Channel lock blue. And you would it, people wouldn't uh, recognize this. Um, so a lot of folks who are certainly tradesmen, they they know uh, channel lock tools uh, made in the USA. I, you know, you've got a lot of competition around the world that makes uh cheaper pliers, but, but none that are, are, are stronger or last longer than channel locks. Yeah, we take a lot of pride in, in still being made in USA. Uh, we do have some product lines that we do bring in from overseas, but it's a very small portion of our business. Um, the vast majority of our, our product are the forged pliers that we make here in Meadville. We have about 362 full-time employees right now. Uh, we run you know five, sometimes six days a week, 24 hours a day. Well, so, uh, John, you mentioned 362 employees. Um, when Governor Wolf uh, made his emergency declaration in March of, of 2020, um, how did, uh, and he shut things down, he, he called them, what, uh, non-essential businesses. Um, uh, your, you and all of your employees were initially shut down as, as non-essential, is that correct? 
Yeah, we uh, we caught wind that this was coming. We're thinking, okay, well, how, how are we going to do this? Um, obviously, you know, we think everybody's job is essential, um, whether it's a channel lock or anywhere. Uh, so we were kind of kind of struck by you know the approach, and then and then when this list came out finally, uh, Pennsylvania was one of the only states that used NCIS codes instead of other guidelines that are out there from Department of Defense, for example. Uh, there's a, the cybersecurity and infrastructure securities list that has, you know, if, if you're a supplier to these critical industries, which if you think about it, tools, pliers are used in just about every industry. So if we're supporting, you know, keeping the power lines going, keeping transportation going, keeping healthcare machines working, you know, there's technicians, there's people out there that are making a, making a living every day as critical um, industry people that are using our tools. So there's no reason why we should have been and ex excluded on that list, which really took me back. So you are excluded. Um, uh, how did uh, the enlightenment uh, come upon the Wolf administration that eventually allowed you to open? Or were you part of that whole uh, waiver application process that uh, and having navigate? Well, how do you determine who is essential, who's non-essential? What was your experience there? I guess the first part was just trying to understand the rationale of he actually listed out our hand tools and cutlery category on the list and all other manufacturers were included in the list as what he considered essential, which really threw me off because, you know, our main customers were also open. So our major retailers were open during this. So people were be able to go in and get, you know, new fixtures for their home, you know, plumbing, if they have plumbing issues, they can buy tools, but we weren't able to continue to supply our customers. But guess who was? The Chinese, the Chinese were still open and they're still shipping their products in and to our customers, you know, right from there, I was like, we can't be shut down. So right away it was, you know, emails and phone calls. And it was, a, I, just, I still remember that weekend. It was pretty stressful between trying to figure out, okay, at first it was, you have to send an email to somebody and then it was, no, we have to use this portal and fill out the application on a portal. And then the portal changed. So I had emails, I had a couple different applications in through the portals and still wasn't get any confirmation or any feedback as to was the application accepted? Was it pending? When was I going to hear? Meanwhile, as soon as we were told that we had to shut down, you know, we contacted our lawyers real quick and said, do we, what do we have to do? And they were, they were caught off guard. They weren't real sure, but they said, well, you got to comply for now. You know, you could lose your license. They could pull your, you know, all these different things that could mm -hmm. potentially happen. So right away we called everybody and said, Hey, we got to close doors, send everybody home. We'll let you know. We kept a, a core skeleton crew of people because I think it happened on a, it was a Thursday and Fridays are a big uh, shipment day for us with one of our major customers. And we had all that product ready to go, just had to be picked, packed and then shipped. So like 15 of us, you know, stuck around that Friday. And I can remember all day long as, you know, the texts were coming in from friends and contacts and other places and National Guard's getting rolled out and people are sending their wife to go buy freezers to buy meat. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what the heck's going on? I mean, it was, it was getting, huh? yeah. <laughs> so we we're dealing with that. And we said, all right, let's get this last pallet out. And it was done, wrapped, ready to go. I said, okay, everybody go home. We'll figure this out. And uh, it, again, it was all weekend long talking to my local elected officials, everybody, I could, the, the governor's action team, the local representative there was a big help. But, you know, it, it took it until I think it was late Sunday night. Uh, I got an email from our local senator who said that she had heard that our waiver had been approved and to go ahead and start bringing everybody back. So I was like, oh, thank God. 
Yeah. So how long did that take? Do you remember uh, kind of like from when you had to shutter your doors and then the process of finding out, okay, can we get a waiver? Our competitors are, are still operating. Uh, my guys aren't working. Um, do you remember how long that uh, ended up being that people were uh, uh, kept away from the plant? It felt like forever, but it was that, it was a long weekend. I think it was Monday afternoon. Um, we'd gotten word. So I think would have been Monday night, third shift. I think we started to have people come back, but I still didn't have an actual waiver or any document saying that we could open up. All I knew was I needed to get everybody back. We needed to get fired up and start working again. Um, but they said, go, no, go ahead. And sure enough, that night, our local state police showed up 10 o'clock at night, that third shift, knocking on our door, our plant door. Uh -huh. Nobody called us, you know, as owners, you know, they, I know some of these guys. I mean, they could have called us, but nope. They had to come not in front of all our associates and say, hey, why are you guys open? We don't have you on, a, on, on the list. I uh -huh. said, oh, okay. So we, I took the email I had, screenshotted it, and ran over to the state barracks and showed them it the first thing that morning. And they were like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. But this whole process, though, was, was, was crazy. It was uncontrolled. It was kind of not based on any kind of logic, in my opinion. Well, and, and of course, we, we know that uh, the, the, the challenges of a epidemic uh, that we've not experienced before, you got a lot of elected officials that are trying to make good decisions and we want to give the benefit of the doubt. But unfortunately, uh, Governor Wolf followed a process that no other state did. This whole idea of um, determining essential and non-essential or life-sustaining and non-life uh, sustaining, and then ha allowing a waiver process that permitted some people to open while others in the same industry uh, were closed. Uh, and I know in, in your own local community, I'm sure you saw lots of businesses um, that never got waivers, that uh, were never able to reopen. I mean, what was your, your assessment, John, of, of how this impacted uh, the community of Meadville, in which you're a, a very large employer there? Well, I think luckily Meadville's very industrial based. So there's a lot of tool companies, you know, tool and die companies, manufacturing companies that were also that were already on the list. So they were never shut down. So a lot of the other business guys I know and gals, you know, they were open. They didn't they were they weren't called out as a hand tool and cutlery manufacturer. You know, the steel manufacturing companies, which we are too, and we thought, well, why don't we just call ourselves that? And some companies may have done that. But because they, he specifically cited hand tools and cutlery, we really couldn't go that route. But I mean, I feel really bad. I mean, the restaurants even still are, are struggling to, to get back open, get up and running, get people back into to work. Just this past weekend, I was at one of my favorite restaurants and he, he says, John, do you know anybody that can cook? I said, I could cook, but I don't think you want me back there. <laughs> but it's still, I mean, it's tough market, tough, tough world out there. Yeah, and are you seeing that on the uh, the employment front too, John? If you have positions that you're looking to hire, because uh, I'm, I'm as I'm talking to you know our members and friends all across PA, uh, those certainly in the service industry and even in manufacturing are struggling to get people off of uh, really the unemployment couch because we're paying a lot of people pretty good money to uh, not work still. Yeah, absolutely. We I think we have. Well, we met yesterday and reviewed them. There were 19 open positions right now we have that we're trying to fill. You know, luckily, the, the, the economy did come back. Uh, the housing market's really strong. Uh, home improvement retail's really strong, which is, which is good for us. Um, a year ago now was terrible. It was some of the worst, worst times financially I can remember. But 
things are back. Things are, you know, we're busy. We're trying to find people. We're trying to hire them, but it's just hard to find people right now. John, in your op-ed uh, that you wrote, you also cited some of these other challenges that uh, um, Pennsylvanians have faced. And I know you as a, a parent and with kids in school, uh, that the whole schooling was a, a real challenge. Um, what was it from your, your observations? Um, what, what do you see on that front? How have we handled the, the epidemic when it comes to the education of our kids? Uh, I think it's a shame, really. I mean, I think, I mean, we're, Dana and I are really lucky. Our, our youngest was a senior when this came down and she walked out of school. I don't know what day it was as her senior year and had no idea that that was going to be her last day of high school. Mm. Didn't have a really a graduation, didn't get the prom, didn't get her senior, senior dance and the senior on the golf team. She didn't get to enjoy that as much, but, but the, the families we have here with the younger kids, you know, now we had a lot of our office group working from home. That was one of the conditions in our waiver. If, if somebody can work from home, they have to work from home. So we had to set up all the different, you know, IT infrastructure to support that, to be able to allow them and be able to work from home, but to, to juggle, you know, working from home and then also having to juggle, you know, who's going to teach the kids today? How's that going to work? Uh, and just the, the, the progress that we've, we've lost in our education over this is, is really a shame. And I think Crawford Central's up, up here in Meadville's done a pretty good job in, in getting kids back in the classroom and uh, keeping everybody safe. And, that, and that's the other thing. I mean, the, the virus is a serious concern. You know, a lot of people have died and it's a lot of people have gotten sick and, We've been lucky that, you know, we've kept everybody safe. We've followed all the CDC guidelines. We've, we've done all the sanitizing. Um, right now, I think we're up to a total of 21 uh, employees out of 360 right now that have tested positive. And the vast majority of them are through contacts outside of work. So I think and that's over the last year. I mean, yeah. is that? Yeah. So that's so 21 out of all, you know hundreds of employees. So you guys have been able to manage this despite being in a, uh, you know, close quarters in some, some ways, yeah, right? I think that's, that's a key point of this is, you know, government can tell us certain things of, you know, past laws and everything, but when it comes down to our safety, I think we're pretty much all responsible adults and can, can wash our hands and um, keep, keep distance from each other and, you know, wear the mask when we're in close quarters. And you know, our, our workforce has done a tremendous job over the past year and, and keeping things wrong. We had one, one instance where we had to shut down after we opened back up and we did the deep cleanse and, and quarantined everybody. And, you know, we were, it was over Easter weekend, I think. And uh, we were back up and running, but since then, you know, we've, we've done well in making sure we do all the extra cleaning. We stagger breaks, we staggered our start and stop times. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that uh, you've seen how other states have handled this. Some states, uh, never, uh, you know, did a central command from the state capital and shut down every single county. They actually, um, um, you know, devolved that decision-making down to local government officials. Uh, certainly our county commissioners have a better handle on capacities in our hospitals, uh, you know, that they could have been the ones to determine what level of shutdowns that uh, would be necessary to help mitigate uh, the spread. And I think that these are some of the lessons learned um, that hopefully, you know, Pennsylvania politicians might look at, you know, say Florida, uh, where they didn't shut things down across the state, but they allowed counties and municipalities um, to better decide or make those decisions based on local needs. 
Now, uh, in your in your op-ed, John, um, you are urging that maybe this is one of the ways that we can help uh, make sure that we handle this in a better way going forward is uh, uh, changing our constitution when it comes to disaster declarations. And and uh, Governor Wolf uh, currently has uh, extraordinary powers um, when it comes to a disaster declaration that far exceed um, other states. And I know that uh, you're, you're advocating for uh, a yes vote on uh, the two constitutional amendments related to disaster declarations, um, one that would limit uh, the, the number of days to 21, down from 90, and the other that would uh, allow for the General Assembly to rescind a disaster declaration uh, by a simple majority vote. Um, why do you think that these are important uh, measures that we take here for dealing with, I mean, who knows if, if we see a reprise of, of COVID, you know, next uh, fall and winter again, um, why do we think that this would be a good solution of, uh, I guess, balancing the power between the executive and legislative branches in, P- in Pennsylvania? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that's, there's way too much power in the hands of one person. Um, I, I still remember having a conversation with our senator about, you know, when this is all said and done, I want to make sure I'm, I can do whatever it is possible that I can never get a letter like I had to get from our governor to allow us to open up <laughs> and have him deem our business essential, our employees' jobs essential. I thought it was it was crazy, and I think, you know, we can work, you know, within the CDC guidelines. We can do everything we, we can to stay safe. We know how to work safe. Um, I just think it's, it's too much, you know, to be able to extend it as long as they did and the impact it was having on our economy and our community. Um, I just I felt like it was it wasn't right and something had to be changed to to, to prevent it from happening again. Well, in fact, uh, most people are shocked to learn that it would be easier for our legislature to impeach and remove Governor Wolf from office than it would be to overturn his emergency uh, disaster declaration. Uh, so I think that most people would agree, uh, we, we shouldn't have to impeach and remove a governor in order to uh, restore checks and balances uh, in our government. So uh, uh, for us, this is why it's, it's a simple uh, yes vote on these constitutional amendments and critical for a restoring of checks and balances in our government. Yeah, and I, th- I thought it was important too to get, you know, some normal normal for people words out, you know, that, that explain, you know, what these amendments are, because the way they were written, you know, it, it doesn't really do a good job of explaining what we're trying to, to achieve by making these constitution amendments, because it is a big deal to change the, the Commonwealth's uh, constitution. But, you know, it's not that it can't be done, but it needs to be done the right way. And so I, I was hoping to maybe get more people aware of what it is we're trying to do and, and you know, try to try to res- not restrict, but just limit or control, you know, the amount of uh, influence that, you know, a governor can have on our, on our state's economy, our education system, our communities. I mean, it just, there, there should have been more input from the, the, the representatives um, on that decision. Yeah. And I think that it is important for us to recognize, hey, we want to have an executive with the power when an emergency happens immediately to be able to make quick decisions. Um, and none of that is taken away from any governor through these amendments. Uh, but it does 
require that uh, that input from the people's elected representatives. And so um, we agree that uh, this would uh, bring back a, a check and a balance of the power uh, that is necessary for us to make sure we can uh, do, I think you wrote it in here, protect both lives and livelihoods. Um, because uh, uh, we, we, we can do both. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think you guys have shown that uh, channel lock of how you can manage um, keeping people at work while also keeping them safe. So, well, John, I, I appreciate your coming on here. I really appreciate your uh, uh, getting the message out. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten some feedback uh, from your article, uh, folks giving you thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, <laughs> so far, it's all been thumbs up. So hopefully well, that's that, a good sign. That's a good sign. And, and hopefully everybody gives uh, uh, the, a thumbs up on May 18 when they go vote on these constitutional amendments. So, John, I appreciate your joining me here on Brews and Views. And uh, I've been talking with John DeArmond, President and CEO of Channel Lock in Crawford County. John, thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. 